I wanted to give a little commercial announcement, first of all, about the handouts that I gave about the new seminary opening up in September of 2017. Reformed Baptists have been around since the first publishing of the Confession, but even before that. But in 400 years, there has never been a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary, ever, neither in England nor in the States. There have always been Calvinistic Baptists, and some of them were confessional, but there's never been a seminary exclusively dedicated to explain the confession and all of its parts so that students don't have to spend the next 20 years jury-rigging their own theology. If you want to read the history of English Baptists, for example, it's depressing because one, one theologian after another comes up with his own theology, and for 200 and some years, and finally in 1856, young Charles Spurgeon goes, guys, hey, the 1689 Confession, why do we need to wander through the bushes with every new theologian? Why can't we just go back to what we've all agreed on for a couple hundred years? And in the States, the first associations of Baptists were the Rhode Island Association in New England, the Philadelphia Association in the Middle Atlantic States, and then the Charleston Association in the South, which preceded the Southern Baptist Convention. And all of them were based on the 1689. That was the confession of all uh, really Protestant Baptist for a couple of hundred years, but there was never a seminary where you could get trained. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, I was converted in 1969, but I didn't come to the Doctrines of Grace till 1976. And even after that, it took me 15 or 20 years to cobble together everything I needed to know to have kind of a settled understanding of what's going on because there was no seminary I could go to to teach me these things. Well, now there is. I'm 69 years old. I retired in 2012 from the ministry I'd been at for 31 years and was ministering to other pastors in Georgia when I was challenged to come to Texas and be the dean of students at the new seminary. Now, the reason I didn't want to move to Florida and do the shuffleboard thing or do something else with my life in the remaining years was that I believe that we each have a calling from God and that we should invest our life in the most meaningful way we can, however that is, until we can't do it anymore. I still have energy left. If I get my hip fixed, I'll have, be a lot more, uh, um, let's just say it won't be so ugly watching me walk around after I get my hip fixed. Actually, my plan to do is, if you've ever saw the movie The Blues Brothers with John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd, when John Belushi did the back springs all the way down the center aisle of the church, that's what I want to do after I get my hip fixed. We'll see if that happens. Anyway, um, and I wanted to challenge you all to pray seriously for our seminary. Uh, we don't have any daddy warbucks. We don't have a corporation that says, here's five million, go spend it however you want to. It's the um, people in churches just like yourselves all across America who believe in this confession, who believe it's biblical, believe in the organization of churches that it teaches, and that we believe people like yourselves are going to be the ones to support it. So I'm glad your pastor's here because they didn't want to come in like a giant Hoover vacuum cleaner and suck money out of the congregation or something like that. And I'm not asking you to, to do just something that would mean you wouldn't support your local congregation. But sometimes people have money that they don't put in the kitty, but they're holding back for some project. And if this is the kind of project you'd be interested in, I would encourage you to give. And I would encourage you to pray regularly and faithfully and seriously. That was a good question that was put up earlier. Who is going to pastor your grandchildren? I mean, was it easy for you to come to these doctrines? I'm you can talk to your pastor, Jessaroga, and we had lunch a couple of months ago and it took both of us time to get our acts together, figure out which end was up, what do we believe, how we can learn this, how, you know, where can I find this? I remember as a young pastor coming to these doctrines and talking to 
a Presbyterian and say, do you and anybody else like me who's a Baptist who believes these things? He goes, nah, they're all dead. I go, well, that's not very encouraging. But it wasn't true. It didn't die with Spurgeon. Uh, It's still going on today. So I believe it's a project worth doing. I believe it's a project worth trying, even if it means we fail. One wealthy man in another state offered to fund the whole thing if we would just take the whole seminary and move it to his state. It wasn't considered a good move. So we said, no, thank you. Then he said, well, since you're not coming here, I'll still give you six figures. But then he lost his enthusiasm, and of a couple months ago, he says, really, right now, I'm not going to really give you anything. But if we had put our trust in one man in the hopes that he would build the kingdom, that would be very naive. I think rather that God's people who believe in these doctrines, who have experienced the power of them, who have seen a church organized around them, I believe you all are the kind who are going to support the seminary. So if a thousand people gave $300, that'd be $300,000. Hey, we could meet budget by the end of January. Or if if 300 of you wanted to give $1,000, that's fine too. Or if one of you wants to give all 300,000, that'd be great. But um, I wanted to encourage you to pray for us to give. And uh, if you have people in your congregation who are interested in seminary training, don't forget about us as you go forward. I wanted to encourage you one last time. It's been very easy preaching to you all because you pay good attention. Now, I don't say that just to curry your favor, but it is. It is easy to preach to you all. Um, This podium is not as high as the one that I had in my church. It was up another couple of feet. You can see the part on top of everybody's head. It was so high. And uh, we had a visiting pastor once, and he preached, and I escorted him out the side door to go to the back to, to greet people as they left. And And he was tearing up, and I said, what's the matter? And he goes, your people, they listened so well. As soon as I announced my text, everybody's flipping to that passage, and they sat there with their Bibles open, looking at me, waiting for me to open God's Word. And he said, that's not my way, and it's not that way in my church. I announced my text. I read it. People close their Bibles. They sit back and fold their arms, kind of like, well, lay it on me. And he said, they're not really people of the, of the book. They're just used to somebody preaching sermons to them. And it's a sign, and it's a, a backhanded compliment to your pastor that you're, you expect to be fed every week. So you come looking at me like, you better feed me, Jack, because I came here to be fed. So um, hats off to what's going on here by the grace of God. I changed my message what I was going to give to you. I told your pastor I was going to preach on one subject, but I was led this morning to change to another subject. I want to give you three strong encouragements to pray. Three strong encouragements when you do pray. In Luke 18, 1, Jesus told his disciples a parable to the effect that men ought always to pray and not lose heart. Do you ever lose heart in praying? Do you ever give up on people? They're too far gone. Or this situation's too big. This situation's too hard. This person is too lost. This person's too hard. This person's too smart. This is just, I can't see this, you know, who am I to ask these things from God? There are different, there's a thousand and one things that might discourage you. It's interesting that only true Christians pray. Now, all religions have people who say prayers. But to really pray and connect with God and to know that God's hearing you and he's pleased with your prayers is another situation. Luke records in Acts chapter 9, verse 11, then when God's giving instructions to Ananias about going and laying hands And Saul of Tarsus, he says, Behold, you'll find him in a certain street, in a certain place. You'll find him there, and he's praying. 
Well, apparently that was a big deal that Paul was praying. He had said his prayers before as a Pharisee, but now he was really praying. Now he was really connecting with God. Some people pray and it's like champagne bubbles. They go to the, up to the ceiling and bob along and burst and they never get out of the room. But when a person's really praying, they're connecting with God. Sometimes we're so weak. Sometimes we're so discouraged. Sometimes we're so depressed. Sometimes we're so muddled and confused. And then prayer becomes something that kind of falls to the side because I don't know that my prayers are getting anything done. Sometimes we're just so tired we don't know how to pray. I remember one night I got down, knelt beside my bed, said, Lord, Father, thank you for this food. And I caught myself when I was praying, oh, man, you are stand up or something, but you can't thank the Lord for the food while you're on your knees next to your bed. We don't have dinner on my bed, by the way. Um, we, I was just tired and my brain was fried. In Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul is, has a chapter on suffering. Most of Romans 8 is on suffering, and the end of it, we know from verse 28 onward, is great encouragement. But in verses 26 and 27, Paul reminds the believers in Rome, he says, sometimes we don't know what to pray. But God the Holy Spirit takes our muddled prayers and rearranges them and gives them to the Father, and only the Spirit really knows, and the Spirit interprets it to the Father, and our prayers go through. So ultimately, even if you feel like you're just kind of a babbling brook, you ought to pray. You ought to come to your Father with whatever's on your heart. I won't go through the list of discouragements to pray because the list of discouragements to pray is about as long as there are people in this room. But today I wanted to give you three strong encouragements. And they're very strong encouragements about your prayer life, about praying. And the interesting thing is none of the passages are about prayer. One of the three passages was just read in your hearing from Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to look at Isaiah chapter 49. We're going to look at Hebrews 10. And we're going to look at Joshua chapter 10. In each of these three passages, um, well, I take it back. One is about prayer, the Joshua passage. But the other two are not about prayer. But they state a truth that if you have your thinking cap on you, wow, what a difference this would make if I brought this into my prayer life. Non-Christians like to accuse Christians of being stupid and ignorant. They don't know anything. They don't believe in evolution. They're stupid people. I heard one um, debater say that Christians have two brains. One's lost and the other one's out looking for it. And uh, those kinds of snide remarks. But in reality, Christians are the only people who really begin to think. Because before your conversion... You're really the sum total of all the forces that are being exerted upon you, your, your biases, your prejudices, your presuppositions. And you don't think independently for yourself until God begins to work in your heart. It's said of the prodigal son in Luke 15 that he was in a far country. He was living there during a famine. He was watching pigs eating food that he wished he had. And it says he began to come to his senses. He began to think, what am I doing here? In this far-off country, when I come from a wealthy home with a good father, back there, and what made me so stupid is to see my life out here possibly dying during a famine. He began to think. Christians are people who think. And the passages that we're going to look at today are encouragements for you to think, okay, how does this scripture apply to my life? Specifically, how does it apply to praying? I mentioned last time, one of the things we can fall into is the habit of just 
reacting to situations rather than stopping and thinking, just emoting. Some crisis happens and we lay on the floor in a fetal position just emoting. Well, you still got to get up off the floor, you still got to brush off your clothes, and you still have to deal with the situation. And so God would have us to think as Christians. So the first passage we're going to look at is Isaiah chapter 49. Who Christ is has a huge impact on how you pray. Then we're going to look at Hebrews 10. What Christ has done has a huge impact on how you pray. And finally, on Joshua 10, we're going to see how Christ fights for his people. Let's look at the first encouragement to pray. Who Jesus Christ is. If you get it straight in your head who Christ is and you keep it straight in your head, it makes a huge, huge difference in how you and I pray. Let's read Acts, excuse me, Isaiah chapter 49. And we'll just read a couple of verses here. This is one of four passages in the book of Isaiah where there's a prophecy given about a coming servant of the Lord, some mighty person who we now know as the Messiah. And if you read the, f- the fourth passage about the suffering servant, it's Isaiah 53. And I don't understand how an Orthodox Jew can read Isaiah chapter 53 and not see Christ, written 800 years before the time of Christ. In chapter 49, in this particular one about the servant, I'm not going to read the whole passage, but I'm going to jo- drop down to the germane passages the servant is speaking, Isaiah is speaking about the servant, and the father is speaking about the servant. And it gets a little confusing, you have to follow who the speaker is. But let's pick it up in verse 5. He says, this is the father speaking about the servant. It is too, I'm reading out of the ESV, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. In other words, it's not that big a deal for you to save so many Jews from the tribe of Judah or Benjamin. It's not that big a deal. Based upon who you are, it's too light a thing for you just to save a couple of hundred thousand Jews and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Now, this passage speaks of the incredible value and biblically, the infinite value of God the Son. The servant is going to prove to be God the Son. He's coming to earth. And he's going to do a work that will astound people. But this is using an illustration here. It's kind of a veiled illustration, but I'll see if I can explain it to you. In the olden days, 30 years ago, you could sometimes go in stores and they would have scales. The last place you'll see scales today is probably in a grocery store in the produce department. And there'll be scales and some product, green beans are 98 cents a pound, so you put green beans in until you get the amount you want and see how much it weighs. But that's a single scale hanging from something. In the old days, they had like the scales of justice. And what you would do is you would put something on one side, and there would be various weights sitting over here that you already know that, and you would pile them on until the two balanced, and then you'd count how many weights were here, and that's how much this weighed, the scales of justice. Now, God says, I'm going to place my son on one side. Foom, the scale goes down. What are you going to put on the other side to balance it out, to bring the scale up, or at least make it move? He goes, you can't put enough on the other side to make the scale move. My son of such infinite value, 
He says here in the ESV, it's too light a thing. And that's the correct translation for the Hebrew word. Many translations say it's too small a thing. But the reason they say small is because something that's light is usually small. Small, light, not that big a deal. He says, it's too light a thing. Here's a couple of hundred thousand Jews, however many Jews there were at that time. Now take all the Jews in the history of the world since then, and all the ones that God intended to save. He says, it's too light a thing. It's too small a thing. You put it over here. The scale doesn't move. So, I'm giving the coastlands, the Gentiles, I'm giving the rest of the world to my son. So you can pile all this on this side, thinking the scale might move a little bit. It's not going to move, but the encouragement to us is the worth of Christ is so vast, so great, so immense, that I'll... I'll bet I could pray about this passage because God says it's too small a thing that he would even just save a few Jews. I'm going to give him the Gentiles. I'm going to pray that God would would save these people and put them over here because of the infinite value of his son. Do you see my biblical rationale for that? This is the weight of Christ. He says it's not enough just to put several hundred thousand, a couple of million Jews over here. Let's put tens or hundreds of millions of Gentiles over here too as a testimony to the greatness of my son, who he is and what he's accomplishing. Think of situations that you're aware of. We're saving a seat just for you. We got one left. Think of a situation and you say, that person is too hard. That person is too lost. That person is too turned off. That person is too mean. That person is too smart for some of us who are intimidated by so-called intelligence. Whatever thing you say that's too much, I can't really expect my God to do something against them. Well, that's really an insult to God. It's too light a thing that you would take this difficult person and plop them. It's not like you put them and Christ goes flying off the other side of the scale. It's too light a thing. Take your hardest cases. Take your most difficult people. Take a group of your most difficult people. Take a whole difficult people group, an ethnic group. Oh, they'll never come to Christ. Do you know that um, on Al Jazeera radio and television in the Middle East, they had an Egyptian iman, a holy man, a uh, Muslim holy man, castigating his fellow Muslims, ranting and raving at them. Why? He says an estimated four to six million Muslims a year come to Christ and this is an insult to Allah and this is terrible and it should never happen. Well, it doesn't get reported over here, does it? We tend to think, well, those people, they're too hard, they're too mean. I mean, that's ISIS and Al-Qaeda and those kind of people. They would never be interested in coming to Christ. Is God up in heaven biting his nails going, you're right, I forgot about them. What about, what are you going to do about these people? No. It's too small a thing. 150,000 Jews, 100 million Gentiles. In 1949, the last missionaries were um, made to leave China. Communist China finally got control of the mainland and made all the missionaries leave. It was estimated there were 4 million Chinese Christians. Today, it's estimated there are between 80 and 100 million Chinese Christians. 
there's been a huge revival going on in China for the last 25, 30 years, despite some awful things done by Mao Zedong and others to repress the spread of Christianity. But we know that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, and Christianity has blossomed. It's not as healthy as it could be as 20, 30, 40 million baby Christians. But the point is, God's doing a tremendous work there. It's not too hard a thing for God to save anybody. If you read the biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher in Wales and in London of the 20th century, he went to a place where he says, I want to go to a place where there's no sociological reason why the gospel should succeed other than the fact that God is interested in honoring his son by the salvation of many. So he was a medical doctor. His engaged girl was a medical doctor. They left their careers. They got married. They moved to this little town in coastal Wales with a 40% unemployment rate. Not, not like unemployment today where they count teenagers and anybody who might want a job. These are heads of households. 40% of the households had no one bringing in any money. The hobbies were prostitution and drinking. They began to preach the gospel. In six months, they saw their first convert. Two years in, they saw something like a mini revival. What happened? God the Holy Spirit was poured out in a tremendous way. And do you know who the converts were in this town in Wales? Now, this is, the community was made up of steel workers, coal miners, and dock workers because they had steel mills right next to the sea there, and you could put them on the ships and send them away, and the coal mines were a few miles inland. So it was a, kind of a tough crowd. These are the people who came to Christ. It wasn't sweet little girls in a Sunday school class. It was one of the oldest men in town who was the town drunk, and everybody knew him as the town drunk. And if you ever grew up in a small town, you know who the eccentrics are. You know who the people who abuse substances He had a fish cart that he peddled fish door to door. At the end of the day, he was always so drunk that he had passed out and fallen into the back. And the pony that pulled his fish cart knew the way to go back home and would stand in front of his house until somebody came out and pulled him out of the leftover fish and dragged him in the house. Another man who was known for being mean, that was his reputation, he was just mean. One time he turned his back while fixing supper and his dog got up on the table and was licking his food. Don't want to do that. He grabbed the dog by the scruff of the neck, took the butter knife, and cut the dog's head off. You've got to be mean, and you've got to be awfully strong to cut off a dog's head with a butter knife. What was his hobby in his 50s? Bare-knuckle fighting at fairs. I suggest you've already taken too many shots to the head. If you're bare-knuckle fighting in your 50s, that's what he did. He's standing at the bar one day by himself because nobody would drink with him because he's Mr. Mean. And he hears two guys at a nearby table who worked at the same foundry he did, and they say, they were saying, that new minister says, no matter who you are and what you've done, Jesus Christ can save you. He can save anybody. He's thinking, if he can save anybody, he can save me. I'm going to go hear that man. So he goes to show up, and he gets there late, and they're already singing the first hymn. And if you've forgotten what it's like to visit a church when you're unconverted, it's kind of an awkward feeling, and you don't know your way around. So he kind of dithered outside, and he went home. Came back the next week, five minutes earlier, and they were still going in. And he was kind of still dithering outside, wondering what to do. And a guy who worked at the foundry recognized him and said, John, John McCann, come, sit with me. So he dragged him by the arm of the walking down the aisle. And Mrs. Lloyd-Jones, the pastor's wife, was sitting there on the aisle. And the Christian guy leaned over, Psst, 
I got one of the devil's generals here. You might want to pray for him. And they sat in the second row, and the guy listened to the sermon. He understood what was being talked about. He understood the gospel. He was gloriously saved. A couple months later, he began to learn to read for the first time in his life because he wanted to read his Bible. And he began with the Gospel of John because it's simple English and simple Greek. And he said, that's my name, and I'm going to learn the Gospel of John. He became like a sweet little old Christian man. And the, the, the palm reader, you know, the lady who does seances for a living and dabbles in the occult and has a big hand outside of her, her store, she turned down some serious money because she didn't feel good one Sunday. And she was looking out the window, why are all these people going to church? Everybody knows churches are dead. But that church isn't dead because people have been going there for months. I'm going to get dressed and see what it's all about. So she trundles over to the church. She said, as soon as I stepped in the door, I felt there was power here, but it was clean power. And she sat down and she heard and she understood the gospel and the Lord graciously saved her. And she became a sweet little old granny that everybody liked to have over to their house and make cookies, but she was no longer the madam who did people's fortunes for them. It was old, hard sinners, people in their 50s, 60s, 70s, that the churches had given up on them. They'd probably forgiven up on themselves. Society doesn't usually look to people that old for breakthroughs, but God was making a statement. I can save anybody. I don't care how hard your sin is. I don't care how long you've been indulging it. I don't care what your lifestyle's been like. I can save you, and I will save whomsoever I will for my honor and glory. Look at the weight on the scales. How much is the infinite value of the Son of God? That's who God's placed on the scales. He says, am I just going to save a few hundred thousand Jews for the worth of my son? No, I will give him the coastlands. I will give him the islands of the world. I will give him the Gentiles as his inheritance. People from every tribe and tongue and people group on the face of the planet will appear before the throne of Christ wearing Christ's righteousness because they were given to the Son by the Father. And that's the value of Christ's worth. So who can you put on the other side of the scales and say, Lord, you can save anybody. You can save all these people. This would be a great person for you to save because nobody but you would get the honor and glory. These other, you know, people have given up on this person. You don't know him. At family reunions, nobody wants to be with him. And he's always, he's an embarrassment to himself and he's an embarrassment to others. My husband's too lost. He's too far gone. He's not that, he's not going to listen. My son, my daughter, you know, I can multiply examples. The point is, who in your scheme of things is too far gone to be savable? And the point of a verse like this is, put them on the scales. Plead the infinite value of Christ for these people's souls. That's number one. The first number one was who Christ is. The second encouragement to praying is what Christ has done. So let's go back to Hebrews chapter 10 again, which Jason read for you. The book of Hebrews is the inspired interpretation of the Old Testament. And in chapter 10, it's all about the work of Christ and how he is the ultimate priest and sacrifice and everything you need. And there's verses in here, you know, if you're a sinner like I am, and I'm a real sinner, I know all the best places to go for encouragement when you sin, because I'm a sinner. I need the encouragement that I 
and find grace, that I can find forgiveness. In verse, um, well, verse 11, I didn't have him read verse 11, but I understand from your pastor, this is the elite top people in the church are here right now. So, I'm buttering you up. So, you're going to answer this question for me, and you'll get a prize. Pastor, they'll get a prize, won't they? <laughs> sure. Sure. You'll get, a spot, you'll get a parking spot with your name on it. Okay. Verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Okay. He's talking about priests offering sacrifices in the Jewish system. So we know that in A.D. 70, the Romans under Emperor Tiberius came in and they destroyed Israel. They destroyed Jerusalem. They tore down the temple block by block. They deported the people. Israel ceased to be a nation in A.D. 70. So, advanced group, elite thinkers, when was this written? He says there are still priests standing there offering their sacrifices every day. And your mind's going, and, and, and they're, if they're still offering priests, so if they're still priests offering sacrifices, this has to have been written before AD 70, because after AD 70, there were no priests, there was no temple, there was no sacrificial system. It was kaput, it was gone. So the author of Hebrews is writing sometime before AD 70. Sorry, I guess I get the prize. I get my own parking spot with my handicap sticker. Okay. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. What does his sitting down symbolize? That he's pooped? He said, man, I need this break. This is really tough. Is that what it symbolizes? No. It's a king sitting on his throne, sitting in royal splendor, sitting and reigning, waiting from that time until... His enemies shall be made a footstool for his feet. Verse 14. For by a single offering, one time, he has perfected for all time. What's that about? For God made him who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Remember we talked about that the two other times I preached. Christ is nailed to the cross as a substitute for our sins. For by one offering, by by single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being made holy. Christ died and we received his righteousness. All of our sins were atoned for by him. I'm perfect. I have the righteousness of God before Christ. And now he's training me up so that my holiness over the course of my life will match what Christ has purchased for me. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. God doesn't sit around thinking about your sins. God doesn't sit about dredging up. Yeah, remember that time back in 97 when you did this? Where there is forgiveness... Of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he 
open for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You and I still sin after we're Christians. The New Testament deals with the tension that I'm simultaneously a spotless believer and simultaneously an ongoing sinner. This passage says that Christ cleanses you from all sin and that you and I can still deal with the sins that we, that we do after we're believers. You know, in churches that talk about Christ died for your sins, end of story, and we discuss that, that there's two halves of the gospel, not one half. It's not just Christ died for your sins, end of story, but Christ died for your sins and his righteousness is given to you to, to be your righteousness for the rest of eternity. You will bear Christ's righteousness forever. That is your entree to heaven that will keep you in heaven. Now, in churches that only teach that Christ died for your sins, what do you do with the sins that you commit after you're a believer? Does that ever slow you down? Well, a lot of people, yeah, because in churches that, well, you need to come forward and rededicate your life. And there's always a trail of people going up there and rededicating their life. And you can rededicate your life 50 times, but that's not going to fix the problem that you will remain a sinner this side of glory. But to know that your sins have been atoned for by Christ and you have his righteousness and when you and I sin, the Bible's full of verses like, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, sure he's faithful to cleanse us and to forgive us. Christ has already paid the penalty for that sin. He is faithful and he is just. Can I depend on God to keep on cleansing me with the blood of Christ the rest of this earthly life? Yes. Is he just to do it? Yes. He can forgive me because Christ has paid the penalty for that. To forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God the Father wants us to pray, counting on the finished work of Christ. How can I come to preach to you today? Have you ever wondered what kind of gall that your pastor and I have who do these guys think they are to come and tell us all the stuff about God like they think they're somebody or they're better than us or they're goody-goodies? Well, I'm sure there are people who that is their motivation. But what I can tell of your pastor, and we're not best buddies. I mean, we're pretty friendly. But anyway, um, we, we don't know each other that well. I don't have a periscope looking in his window. Oh, wow, look at that. Uh, but I can pretty well guess from the size of the congregation that you appreciate this man and you see his life and you're willing to listen to him. You're hoping that I'm the same way. We're not stupid and we're not arrogant. We're trusting in the finished work of Christ. I'm a sinner who can stand up and tell you about Christ because I've been forgiven for, for all my sins and I have Christ's righteousness. And it's the greatest thing in the world. And if I'm any kind of a decent person, I would want you to have that. I can remember the first few months after I was a Christian, I was so elated to have my sins forgiven and so elated to have this new life that was so different. And I could see my life changing, and I wasn't trying to change it. Something weird, something supernatural was actually going on. My life was changing. And I wanted to share with my fraternity brothers and guys in college what was going on just out of the overflow of joy and love in my heart. I didn't feel a big guilt trip. To, you needed to go witnessing, you know, four times this week. I was witnessing every day because Christ was so precious. Christ was so special, this new life. To have your sins forgiven, to know that 
you can stand up and tell people about Christ, not because you're better than them. You're one of them. But you're a beggar telling other beggars where you found a loaf of bread. Think, imagine the father saying this. Here comes my spiritual daughter. She's a saved sinner. She's coming to me trusting in the finished work of Jesus. With her, I am well pleased. Here comes my son, again, trusting in the work of Jesus. With him too, I am well pleased. God hears and answers our prayers for Christ's sake. There's no sin clamoring for my arrest. There's no sin clamoring for my, aton- for my condemnation. I have full atonement. There is nothing on my record. It's totally clean. And I have the righteousness of Christ. So I, I'm, a, I'm in a position to pray. I pray in Christ's name, trusting in his finished work, trusting that I'm bearing his righteousness, trusting that his righteousness is my standing before the Father. What kind of a tremendous inducement is that to pray? I don't have to feel guilty. And yes, I still sin, and I still have to confess my sins. But I don't have to linger over them forever. I don't have to do penance. I don't have to crawl up a flight of stairs on my knees or do gymnastics of some kind in order to appease God. Christ has already done that. But I have this tremendous position of having my sins forgiven. And so the devil can't make me, why don't you go sit in a corner and, get, and just be quiet? Because I'm Christ's servant and Christ has told us what to do. Martin Luther could never get over the fact that he was simultaneously a saint and a sinner at the same time. He still kept on sinning and he learned to confess his sins, but he was elated that Christ's righteousness was his righteousness and that his sins were not clamoring for his arrest and condemnation. You, have at, you should have confident access to the Father. Let's say, I've given you some illustrations, I don't want to repeat them, but think of some situations that might bear in your life where you might feel guilty of something that you've done. And you, well, I don't think the Father wants to hear from me because I haven't had a very good week. Or I didn't talk to my sister very well. I didn't talk to my parents very well. I didn't talk to my spouse very well. I feel kind of guilty. The devil goes, you should feel guilty, you piece of blankety blank, 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 blank. You're a terrible excuse for being a Christian. Why in the world do you think God wants to hear from you? If you believe that, then you're not believing the scriptures. You're simply believing the counsel of the devil. And he says that Christ has forgiven all of your sins. There are no outstanding sins clamoring for your condemnation. You have the righteousness of Christ. Speak up. Pray. Ask God for these things. My final illustration is from Joshua chapter 10. This one does involve prayer, but it does it in a way that you and I, I was, I've been a Christian since 1969, so you carry your one. That's a long time. And... Um, I just saw last year, I just saw for the first time something in this passage I had never seen before. Joshua chapter 10, we'll read verses 12 and following. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, so Joshua speaking, Son, Stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. 
Now, this is the famous episode of the sun standing still. And then it says, is this not written in the book of Jasher? The book of Jasher is mentioned several times in the Old Testament. It was a historical book that in God's providence did not get preserved. We know that there was a letter um, to the Laodiceans uh, in the New Testament that didn't get preserved either, but it's mentioned in other places. So it doesn't mean that um, they weren't good letters or good histories. It just meant that in God's eternal purposes, they were not to be preserved. But he mentions in passing, this is written about in the book of Jasher. The sun stopped in the middle of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There there has been no day like it before or since. And almost invariably, evangelicals go, now how could this happen? What kind of astronomical phenomena is this? If this happened, then that that would affect the tides. And and they just go off into space about the astronomical phenomena. But that's not the place where the author registers his huge shock. He says, do you see the shock of this passage? It's not that the sun stood still. This, uh, there's been no day like this before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for his people. God listens to people. God heard a man ask something, and God answered his prayer. That's the shocking thing. Almighty God hears puny little people, but they're his people, and he hears their prayers, and he answers their prayers. That's what's to be the locus, the place of our shock not the astronomical phenomena, which God can do what he pleases, but the fact that God heard a man's prayer and answered it. Earlier in Joshua chapter 5, if you'll go back there for a moment, there's a a setup here. Joshua has seen God fight on behalf of his people. In chapter 5, verse 13, it says, When Joshua was by Jericho... He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, do you know what the word behold means? Look at this. Check this out. That's what the word behold means. And some modern versions that drop the word out are not doing you a favor because they're meant to say, check this. Can you believe? It's meant to register a surprise. And behold, look, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us? Or for our adversaries. Here's this mighty warrior. You're the captain of the Lord's armies. Okay, who, who's this dude going to fight for? For us or the other side? So he goes out and asks him. And he, the warrior, said, no. <laughs> it's like not good English. I'm not going to fight for you, and I'm not going to fight for you. Well, who's there left to fight for? Well, I'm going to fight for the Lord's purposes. Oh, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. I don't do your bidding, but you might fit into my plans. Now I have come. The phrase the army of the Lord literally means the host of the Lord, the angelic host of the Lord. There are portions of the Old Testament that take the curtain, so to speak, and pull it back and give you glimpses into eternity. And some passages about the Lord when he's sitting upon his throne in heaven, and one pa- couple passages say there's 10,000 times 10,000 angelic creatures sitting around him in this like giant stadium of witnesses and people who serve him. 10,000 times 10,000. Now, I don't know what you think about angels. Maybe you watch too many Hallmark movies or stuff like that or... Um, things like that, but 
In 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 35, one angelic warrior kills 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. That's one angelic creature does it in one night. And there's, there's 10,000 times 10,000 of these standing and seated upon, around the Lord. They're powerful creatures. They do the will of God. They're unbeatable. The question of our text is not whether you whether or not you are right with him, that's the question. He, want, he doesn't care so much whose side you're on as are you right with him, are you on his side? If the Amorites had been on his side, then he would have fought for the Amorites, but they weren't. And he asked Joshua, whose side are you on? So what goes back to our text? There's been no day like it before or since. This God is gonna fight for Israel, and he did. He enabled us to fight and finish the day by making the day extended so we could get the battle done before it got dark. When the Lord heeded the voice of a man. Joshua didn't order God to do this. He was told to lead the armies of the Lord. He was told to lead them against the Amorites. He was told that he would be given the victory. And the, and the, the battle was already being engaged, but he wanted to pray, Lord, we need a longer day to finish this battle to do the job. I'm praying that you would give us the resources we need to finish this job. We need a longer day. And God does it. The Lord heeded the voice of a man. The Lord fought for Israel. Does God heed prayers of his people today? Well, sure he does. Does the Lord heed the voice of his people today when they have a need and they need someone to fight for them? Well, sure he does. I can remember examples early in my Christian life, you know, God's very gracious with children and fools, and I was a child in the faith, and I was a fool, so I qualified, and he was very gracious to me. And there were situations where I had people kind of after me. These people were going to do me dirty, and they told me they were going to do me dirty, and they said things about me and to my face and behind my back, and I just kind of disregarded it and went on. And the Lord gave me grace not to be mean-spirited, and like I didn't have a little voodoo doll at home with their picture, you know, sticking pins in it. Lord, get that guy. I just, you know, you, you turn over to the Lord and you go on. God did some amazingly hard things to those men. Things that even in my meanest, twisted, this little mind would have never dreamed of doing to these men. But he essentially nuked them. And throughout my life in ministry, when people have gone after me, God's been my warrior on my side. And you can look up God as a warrior in the Old Testament. He will fight for his people. He will fight for you. Do you believe that? Joshua did. He told the sun to stand still because you promised to take care of us. You said every place the sole of our feet trods, we will have victory. We need more time, as I understand it, as a military commander to finish up this operation, to finish defeating the Amorites before they escape into the darkness. God answers his prayer. So how can the mighty warrior help you? What can you pray for that you need to finish the things that God's asked you to do? God, I'm supposed to be a husband and a father, and it's really hard sometimes, and sometimes I don't know which end is up. Would you please help me? I'm a wife and a mother, and I don't always know how to help my husband. I don't know how to keep on the right side of my kids. You've got to help me. Lord, I'm a professing Christian teenager, and my parents aren't perfect, and I needed help from someone who had imperfect parents, the Lord Jesus, and still lived for his God. Lord, you've got to help me do these hard things. 
You've got to fight for me. You've got to help me. And he is so pleased to do that. And the sad thing is we never ask him. Never think to ask him. He wants us to ask him. It's more shocking that God hears the prayers of converted rebels than the fact that a puny little star, our sun, would stand still in the heavens. The shocking thing is that he hears former rebels who've been turned into sons and daughters and says, I delight to take care of you. I delight to answer your prayers. I will stand for you. The whole idea of a covenant is, I am your God and you'll be my people. And the reason why you need a king is to protect you and you need a priest to intercede for you and you need a prophet to tell you what to do and the Lord Jesus Christ will be all those things for you and he will fight for you. He promised we'd never make it to heaven. I mean, the devil could have taken me out on day one of my Christian pilgrimage. Just read, read Job chapter one and two. Man, it, it can get ugly out there, but the Lord fights for you and you're here. Have there ever been times when you thought, man, I've hit the bottom and busted clear through. I can't get any lower than this. I think I'm going to lose my mind or my Christianity or, or my, my everything. And the devil says, why don't you just curse God and die and get it over with? And the Lord wouldn't let that happen. And you're here today. Why are you here today? Because the Lord fought for you. It's too small a thing that my son would give his life just for the sons of Judah I will give him the, the, the Gentiles, the nations, as his inheritance. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those he is making holy. And you can come close to him with full assurance of faith, having your conscience washed. And here he says, it's an amazing thing that God would heed the voice of a man, a sinful little creature made a son by grace, and he did what he, wanted, what he was asked to do. And those are encouragements for us to pray. Let's close in prayer. One final note I wrote to myself, which I didn't tell you, is that person that, that, that Joshua met, the soldier, that's a Christophany. That's Christ in appearing as a man before his incarnation, called a Christophany. Okay, that's our word for the day, and uh, let's pray.